Hello everyone, welcome to another Squiggly Film Club podcast. I'm Ben Mitchell, joined by Laura Beth Cowley and Steve Henderson, and, ooh, special guest to the podcast, Mr. Joseph Wallace, hello. Hello, thanks for having me. Very, very welcome. It upturned the whole uh, Squiggly Film Club system. <laughs> Laura, bite, bite. <laughs> it's like, flip the table. <laughs> like, I demand James. <laughs> Scatters DVDs everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, not much public outcry, don't worry. <laughs> Amazingly. <laughs> Amazingly. I think the only person who cares about the... Uh, the charts and the, the the voting and all that sort of stuff is me. So, you know, it's it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Welcome, Joseph. It's fantastic to have a guest on the podcast. Thanks. It's my first time on the Squiggly podcast as well, which is very exciting. Hmm. We've featured your work, kind of, like, but not you as such. Like, I, people who've worked on projects of yours have been on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things we we just assume we've covered you. Or like that we've had you on, I think, because I was really surprised I mean, you've that been we on hadn't. The site, surely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm you, quite happy. I'm quite happy to be here, not talking about my work anyway. So it's a nice, uh, it's a nice change. So tell us about your work, Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's get to know Joseph. <laughs> Where did it all begin? Where were you born? In a in a peach. <laughs> oh, that's a good segue. So I do gather this film has um some significance or is is a personal favorite of yours is that right yeah this was something that i watched growing up and i think sort of stayed in my head for a number of reasons partly because of the sort of mixed media nature of it um but also just the visual language um and probably on a subconscious level it sort of informed a lot of um you know the way i sort of approach uh design in animation anyway this is sort of yeah a film that stands out for me in terms of the way it the way it looks mm-hmm. you're a big fan of this as well aren't you oh yeah it's the vetoing yeah this was the the <laughs> first film i suggested for the uh this series of podcasts and i was also really annoyed when it lost out um twice i was like no <laughs> not fair like they said, democracy simply doesn't work. No, I don't like it. But we did. Finally, eat. we've got proof that democracy doesn't work. I think also, sort of, probably more subconsciously had a, quite a big effect on my animation style as well. I think my very first puppet was kind of an accidental ripoff of the centipede, um, <laughs> uh, except it was a mime, as you know, every stop motion student has to make a mime at least once. Um, I just saw a a mime student film mm. pop up online today. Someone posted it to me. You have to make at least one. Um, Otherwise, are you really even animating? (laughs) It's Um, like a rite of passage for stop motion. But it's that very like Art Nouveau art style, and it's very. it's, it's not that common. I think the only thing I other thing I can really think of that's done something similar is maybe uh, the stop motion sequences in The Little Prince. Um, have a kind of similar mm. art style to them, but there hasn't really been all that much, especially in a feature film, since because it's quite a dramatic, not remotely trying to mimic reality style. Mm. So we're we talking so much about film that we've not even pressed play on yet. 
Uh, are we skewing all formats of this podcast? Is that what's happening? Are we? Is this... Yeah, we're never going to actually watch yeah. it. We'll just well, we should we'll probably just for about it. We should probably hurry up and put it on so we can get through all the live action stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Crying out loud! <laughs> all right. Okay. So, are we are we poised and ready to click? I'd say I'm seeing because we're, we're we're doing this first time. I've actually noticed that Joseph actually set up a he set up his laptop in well I suppose is his kitchen. He's got a projector. He's watching this properly. He's doing <laughs> it the he's doing it the proper way. I That's, was I was lucky to have kind of set up a, a sort of half baked home cinema just before well around Christmas time. So lockdown has been saved by the fact I have a projector <laughs> in my flat. Oh, fantastic! So should we count down from three then? Right here. Okay. Three, two, two one, one, play. And the familiar unveiling of the Disney castle thing signifies the beginning of James and the Giant Peach, directed by, is it Henry Selleck? Yeah. This is one of those films that I always forget is Disney, and then every time I'm surprised when there's the Disney logo, I'm like, oh yeah. Every time. Also interesting because... Nightmare, The Nightmare Before Christmas, which James and Giant, uh, which uh, Henry Selick also directed, was Touchstone, which was sort of Disney's um, adult wing in a way at the yeah. time. But then this was sort of deemed, I guess, more aimed at families, so it was released through the Disney banner. I There's a it- fantastic thing in um, Disney War, the book by James B. Stewart, where they describe the reason why Touchstone exists, and that's basically so Disney could make a film about a prostitute. Mm. Or Pretty Woman, as uh, probably, (laughs) yeah, a little bit more innocently put, yeah. This is quite an amazing shot, the kind of, like, fake perspective to make it seem like the beach is much further away, but it's probably only about, like, two or three metres away from them, and is clearly Mm. made of styrofoam. They've thrown a lot of Vaseline on this lens (laughs) to to kind of mask the, uh, I mean, I guess it's meant to feel a bit unreal, anyway, but... um, yeah, they were saying, I think, I mean, originally Henry Selleck wanted to do the whole thing in stop motion and um, it was sort of deemed to be too expensive. And, and then and then they sort of, he thought about having James be a live action performer the whole way through. Um, but again, that was going to be sort of difficult to do with the technology at the time. And so they decided to sort of bookend it with these live action sequences. But I think they tried to sort of push the production design so that you know the animation and the live action sort of meet somewhere in the middle i mean it works it works really well because it does sort of break up the film and like you said there's another there's then there's obviously the peach scenes and then there's a dream sequence within the peach scenes which is yet another style um and it's one of those films where i just i always forget things until much later and it was such a big part of my childhood um a lot of films I really love, I love because I watched them thousands upon thousands of times because I had a tendency to watch like the same film and then just hit rewind and watch it again as a kid, yeah. slightly obsessively, which I think sort of set me up as a good career as a stop motion person. Um, and because I, I struggled with sleeping as a child, I would watch uh, VHSs or audio books like to fall asleep to. And often I would wake up at like different points in the film and find secret things so like there's like an easter egg at the end of the film which i won't spoil yet until we get to it but i didn't see that for years because it's right at the end of the credits and then i remember waking up one night and being like what the hell is mm-hmm. this <laughs> so it's a really 
remarkably dense film in terms of like the amount of different things that go on in it. Mm. And Spike and Sponge are amazing casting as well. Oh yeah, it's such a good it's such a a, a good excuse to because it is live action mm-hmm. to have these actors portraying uh, these sort of horrific characters. Um, and you can tell they're having so much fun with it as well. It's yeah. really, um, it's kind of, yeah, their performances are just kind of, yeah, joyful. It's one of those things I remember from the book, which was probably my favorite Roald Dahl book, um, like this and Matilda, and feeling very resistant towards seeing either film adaptation for actually quite a long time. Um, oh, really? Yeah. And I not very resistant, because I, I sort of, Part of me wanted to, because I loved The Nightmare Before Christmas, but um, another part of me kind of wanted to keep the, the version of the story, which I had kind of cinematically directed in my own head, preserved. Um, and one of the great impossibilities is how do you depict Sponge and Spiker? Um because they're so gruesome and repugnant the way they're depicted in the book. And they definitely threw themselves into this. Yeah, so yeah. if you're watching <laughs> along, you'll see. The makeup is tremendous, isn't it, as well? Like just emphasizing any wrinkle and imperfection and that kind of weird way that quite ugly women sort of cake it on to try and like hide things, but it just makes everything much, much worse. Yeah, it's that sort of um, spinster aesthetic. <laughs> And actually, I think Joanna Lumley has prosthetics on. She has sort of prosthetic cheekbones, which have been added to, to again, just to sort of heighten the visual. I mean, the costumes. I mean, I love this set behind here. Everything was shot on sound stages. And the house behind, like you were saying, Laura Beth, is, you know, obviously maybe four metres back from where the actors are. Um, but it's all sort of crooked. It, you know, it could be an illustration. It has this fairy tale quality, this sort of, stop motion feel to it like the sets even feel kind of carved so we're in a world where we're we're sort of in fairy tale we're in a heightened reality straight away um but they sort of keep the magic of stop motion i suppose for the uh for the magic part of the story and Mm. i think that's probably what stops the film from feeling jarring between all these different it you know style iterations that go out on throughout uh, something that we've discussed quite a lot in previous ones because we've covered a couple of Roald Dahl adaptations were were you a Roald Dahl book fan as a child, Joseph? Yeah, big time. I think I think he's he's uh, I don't know. It's it just it's for me. It's just sort of an integral part of childhood from from memory. You know these these kind of stories that were quite dark, quite strange, uh, you know, challenging sometimes, but they always had, you know, kids who were sort of uh, problem solving, who were heroic, who would sort of, you know, come through against the odds. I mean, the beginning, I, I, I sort of reread half of the book in advance of the of this session. And uh, it's absolutely tragic. You know, the beginning of the book, you're kind of in tears by like page two over how, you know, this kind of horrible life that James is having and the way it's described, which is kind of captured quite nicely, I think, in this sort of bleak, I mean, even this moment here where he's, you know, the aunts are having this sort of lavish meal and James is sent up to it, sort of lick a crisp packet. <laughs> I think in terms of him being put in this uh, a horrific situation, this young lad, 
I think when I first when I first read Harry Potter, and I'm not I've not read them all. I'm not a big Harry Potter fan. Stop rolling your eyes, Ben. Um, so when I My first eyes didn't read... move, you're well, <laughs> perfectly entitled to like. Uh, I mean, maybe not now. Now that she's so clearly a monster. Yeah, oh, exactly. But, well, uh, carry so on. When I first <laughs> thanks thanks for your permission. Um, <laughs> when, I first, when I first read Harry Potter, I remember thinking that there wasn't as much gravity to Harry Potter's situation, which was a horrific situation. He was kept in a cupboard under the stairs. Oh my! Fine. He was fine compared to what Roald Dahl did to his protagonists. I mean, he wasn't because, like malnourished. Yeah, yeah. At least he got fed. Mm. Probably deserved it. Well, Speculative yeah. Twat. <laughs> mm. I've only seen bits of the films but he seems annoying the reason why I always find that quite interesting is because I've never read any Roald Dahl books neither as a child okay. or as as like sequentially Only I, the only one I've read is Fantastic Mr Fox after watching the film um, mm. to see what the big deal was um, so were it, they not bought for you, or did you? No, just they just weren't. I, right. They weren't bought for me, and I wasn't interested. I guess. Mm. Um, I well, wasn't. Did you read? Did you read any books? Did you have like a particular sort of series, like did the Goosebumps books or something like that? Well, like we talked about before, because uh, so I was more into Doctor Zeus, I guess, as if like mm. you only have two options: Roald Dahl or Doctor Zeus. <laughs> that's the that's the marker in the ground. But, the, t- um, the two crazy guys. But. I think it had more to do with the fact that because I was very strongly dyslexic, especially as a child, um, I didn't learn to read until much, much later, probably by the point that I could read by myself. Roldar was already a little bit too young for me. Mm. Um, And so I just sort of skipped that developmental stage um, and kind of went straight into horror, (laughs) weirdly. So... um, so if there wasn't someone getting slashed, I wasn't that interested. <laughs> Some of them it's were a little horrific. They kind of tiptoe up to horror. Yeah, but, I just uh, <laughs> I just missed the tiptoeing and just went straight <laughs> into like yes. You just gallop straight in there. Sorry, <laughs> Joseph. What were you going to say? Well, the the book is is obviously quite sort of short, and apparently this was this was Henry Selick's sort of pet project, and actually during Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, he he sort of saw all the artists and the crew around him and, and said, you know, we have to sort of keep this going. Let's try and let's think about the next project straight away. So he'd been pushing it for a while and and actually sort of went to Tim Burton and Denise DeNovi, who'd produced Nightmare and, and said, I'd love to do James and the Giant Peach. Um, and the writing process, they actually got Dennis Potter, who did The Singing Detective, you know, English writer-director, um, to do a version of the screenplay, but his his screenplay sort of set it in World War Two, and it was full of Nazis, and it was quite different. Um, and in the end, James was sort of saved by his his dad, who didn't die, and and apparently um, Felicity Dahl, Roald Dahl's widow, who had actually quite a lot of say in the script, um, sort of didn't didn't like that version, and they ended up going with this this script by Kerry Kirkpatrick, who actually did who wrote Chicken Run. Yeah. Um, and actually, this was his first sort of proper screenplay. So they sort of took a risk on it, but actually, but it was it was the Dahls, really, who sort of uh, liked the... Yeah, liked the screenplay and went went with that one. Mm. But it is quite different to the to the book. I mean, in the book, the 
there isn't an introduction with the parents. You just hear about them being gobbled up by the rhino. So there's a few sort of changes to do with the sort of setup and I guess the emotion, the emotional sort of drive of the of the story that that's sort of developed a bit further in the screenplay. And you and you see more of the aunts in this in this opening sequence. Hmm. I, I may be misremembering. I, I feel like maybe this character, um, the Peter, Pete Pothelwaite. Uh, I feel like he was maybe described a little differently in the book, or maybe I just made my own memory of. I I thought he was meant to be more of a kind of like old, um, sort of beardy guy, like a kind of mm. sort of street person who just approached James and was like, "Hey, take this bag of maggots." <laughs> I also always thought the maggots looked like green. Pasta. What's the twirly pasta that you get? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember there was a school play version of James and the Giant Peach, and school play adaptations. You know, they'd be officially licensed, but they would take some liberties in terms of a adapting it to you know be performed on a stage, but also to be performed by stupid little kids. So they would often <laughs> dumb down and really simplify the dialogue. And we had this one teacher who was just hopeless. He would try and direct school plays and he would get like halfway through and he'd just give up on them because we were all just so difficult to work with. And uh, <laughs> Bunch of prima donnas. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he would, but he would make such a big like, you know, and I think he just didn't really know what he was doing. But, um, but I remember the, the one thing from the script is there was a scene where like, I guess, like, for every school play, you need to, like, throw a couple of kids just a few lines and then they, you never see them again. And there was actually a scene where the parents die in the, in the Giant Peach play. They have to, like, be running on the spot. It's like, oh, shit, the rhino's coming up behind us. Or the hippopotamus or whatever. They had to sort of fake being murdered. <laughs> by, or mauled. That would have been me in the play, I'm sure. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, and that kid was me, Ben. <laughs> well, if the if the play had made it into you know opening, yeah. made it to opening night, maybe. I was probably the arse end of the hippopotamus. <laughs> you would have been the old man. You played all the old men. Yeah. Yeah, you had that beard at school, didn't you? Yeah. I kind of did. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Just a ten-year-old with a full beard. So we asked uh, we asked people on Twitter what uh, what they thought of the film, uh, whether they you know what they thought of it. Because I've not seen this film since it was released or since it was on VHS when I was a kid or something. I think it's nineties, really? early two thousand. Yeah, last time I saw this film, wow. um, it, and it's what's beautiful about that is it's like it's perfectly preserved and it's I'm, I'm remembering every scene. Uh, like last time I saw it, it's taking me back twenty years. It's great. I was going to um, say that I hadn't seen it in a while because I haven't seen it in like a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They did a screening um, a few years ago at the Watershed Cinema in Bristol. Um, mm. And I'm not quite sure what it was part of, but they had it on the big screen there. And I think that was probably, uh, other than seeing it in the cinema for the first time, the only other time I'd seen it on the big screen. And it was actually kind of great to see it big because the images uh you know especially the stop motion stuff really does 
sort of look fantastic. It was nice to see it um, in the cinema again. Was that the... Was it part of, like, a dull month? You know how, like, the watershed does, like, a month of, like, a director's film Oh, it might have been. Was it yeah. two, year, two years ago, I think, um, yeah, the... the um, was it Chapter that put on the Roald There was a, a rolling yeah. thing because I wrote an article about all the Adal adaptions. Centenary mm. or something, wasn't it? Hmm? Yeah. Yeah, like a hundred mm. years of I saw it at the Watershed once, but I wish I'd seen the, the screening you went to because for the reason you described, the version of this film I have is the DVD version and it doesn't really do, I think, the animation a lot of justice a lot of things it's a lot it's a very soft focus film and mm. uh when i went to see it at the cinema they just played it off a dvd <laughs> oh. i was so irritated oh. <laughs> <laughs> like at least play the the oven blu-ray <laughs> well i was saying to steve there's there is a blu-ray now but i think it's only region one in the states um but it's a restored version of the film so they did actually sort of clean it up and there's a few bits on youtube where you can see uh, footage from the Blu-ray and it looks it looks stunning. Um, but unless you've got a Blu-ray free player, uh, you know, region free player, you're stuck. Oh, that's that's easy enough to do. That's you know, just lefty righty up and down eject <laughs> yeah. play pause on your on your remote and then away you go. You've got yourself a You're off. You've you've hacked it. It's a go. really um, I read a, Oh, sorry, carry on. No 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 go for it. I was just gonna say it's a really under merchandised film, especially for a Disney film. Mm. Like, when you think of the amount of crap you can get Nightmare for Christmas on, like, it's very yeah. hard to find any merchandise or even just, like, copies in general of James and the Giant Peach. It mm. didn't find its mass audience mm. in the way that Nightmare did over time. Mm. It's definitely, like, it feels very much like an animator's film. Like, a film yeah. that's yeah, really loved by animators. Both have become sort of... Uh, cult classics in some ways although nightmare in a much bigger way um and i think i mean you know nightmare was successful in cinemas this this wasn't it was really considered sort of a box office flop but um i think i mean like you're saying you know uh, people i think people in the, in the industry appreciated it because it won i think it won like best feature film at annecy mm -hmm. in 97 or something a year, a year after it came out but it, it's sort of yeah, there's a lot of people I speak to who haven't seen it. And for me, it's like an important piece of cinema in terms of, you know, storytelling and animation and live action, how you can sort of put these put these things together. In the scene we just saw as well, where they where the public are coming in to see the peach, apparently Roald Dahl's grandchildren are in that scene. Lucy Dahl's kids were extras in their nice little 1940s costumes. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice when there's little... And dull like adaptions often have that where they have like parts of him in it, like in Fantastic Mr. Fox, um, his desk is a replica of Dahl's desk, like including mm, the objects mm. and props on it. And it's quite a nice. Yeah, way apparently of... Wes Anderson went to the, the like the Dahl household and sat in the chair and soaked up the vibe. <laughs> you can get that. I think there's some quite nice photos of that in that James the Giant book that I recommended, which. Get, uh, you know, as yeah. as we've said, that is not uh, not the most amazing art book ever. But when there is so little about this film, anything will do. Mm. Yeah, well, that was that was interesting. So Laura Beth and I were talking online about this film and about um, the the fact it didn't have an art book, and actually most um, you know animated films 
well nowadays they all tend to have like a nice you know coffee table book of the sort of making of it and they vary in how in-depth they go or the quality of them but this film despite having you know a really rich sort of artistry to it didn't really have a book but then you mentioned that there is there is a book which I ordered from eBay and have just devoured over the last few days, but it's it's very much aimed at children. So the text is most of the page. Yeah. It's like point 20. It's huge. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, a few small liberties. And it's like, and James then went into the peach and you're like, okay. Yeah. Here's but a that's how I whoa, whoa, Slow down, slow down. <laughs> that was how I learned that um, uh, Joanna Lumley had prosthetic cheeks from that from that book so there's a few there's a few uh, gems in there so we're now if anyone's watching along we're now transitioning into the world of animation and yeah and another different e- style already yeah set, it's kind of 2d silhouette i love that sequence where the uh cat uh centipede's head comes in and it's all um exaggerated in a way that it wouldn't even be in the shadow it's like he has like mm. holes in his head. I know, and I really love are. that. I don't like <laughs> the thing is with this film. I would be happy if any one of the styles was the the predominant feature. It's a little evocative of Oogie Boogie. Mm. The it's lighting the lighting, and the isn't it? Teeth and the eyes. Um, yeah, I'd not really thought about it before, but it does. It does have every kind of every medium. It has live action, stop motion, CGI, two D, cut out. Yeah, it's a real. It's kind of. Homaged. And it's one of those things that you don't think of because it's it's always sort of quoted as being a far more modern thing to do to have hybrid films, but it's one of those things that you're constantly fighting against that that we've always been hybrid. Because mm. whatever worked and back then there wasn't even that thought process necessarily about it. It was just whatever works, whatever makes sense, we'll do it because we don't have necessarily the uh capacity to do it all in one medium yeah and i think as you're watching it you're not ever massively aware of the techniques because as a film it's really about the story all the techniques are kind of to do with the narrative and and they sort of come from the storytelling so it's not it doesn't feel forced and i suppose in a way you know selick wasn't a stranger to this mixed media style he'd done a lot of Idents for MTV um, and this film Slow Bob and in the lower dimension, which I think he did in in the early nineties, which was a mix of sort of live action and stop motion as well. So I think he's he's always sort of played with those um, that sort of mixing of techniques. I think in my head, I've never gone beyond this as being like, okay, this is perfection. Like, in my head, this is still the best stop motion can really be. Mm. And everything else, I'm just like, yeah, it's fine. But this is this is amazing because I'm far more into stop motion when designs have been done or changed to be efficient or been done to be not hinder the design or the story in any way, but also work in the, the kind of reasonably the cheapest or easiest way, like with this, where... Um, obviously Spider has replacement faces and pretty much all the other characters except Centipede and James have like mouth plates that can be replaced so they're not relying on uh, constantly changing the whole head or the whole face or using gears or something so like with um, Grasshopper he's got like the biped mouthpiece that comes off 
Same with, I think, Glowworm and Ladybird, where she has those, like, jowls that are a part of the design style. But you can tell you can just pop that mouth shape out. I always like Ladybird as well, because she reminds me of my grandma. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Let me see that. Not that grandma. <laughs> oh, she reminds me of that grandma. She reminds me of my dad's mum. It's nice. I mean, in some ways, I think of this film as being almost a precursor to what we've seen over the last decade with Laika, because it really, you know, the design is is it's very sort of stylized. It's graphic. It's quite sort of picture book style. And I think there's a similar thing with Nightmare Before Christmas, but um, it's very much not Arben. You know, it's, it's, it's quite a sort of adult aesthetic in a way. And it's only really been Laika that have maybe been sort of, you know, pushing in that same kind of direction. But I'd agree with you, Laura Beth, in that this for me, it has the design language, but it also, it's not overly polished. I think this and Nightmare hit hit a sort of, a, a point in stop motion where you can tell it's puppet animation. It has this kind of staccato quality to the movement. Um, and and I think, you know, some of the films we've seen recently have become very overly polished in a way. So they might have, I think Coraline has a really lovely, you know, design language as well. Um, but it, but, but performance-wise, movement-wise, the Leica stuff has become more and more polished to the point where people sort of can't necessarily differentiate between that and, and CGI. Hmm. And I think There's something missing. It, and I think then it starts to move into something that's actually kind of slightly, maybe not quite unnerving, but kind of irritating. And I don't know whether that's because I, I am aware that it's stop motion, even though, um, even though it doesn't necessarily look like it. And I, I, I don't know why I kind of get a bit frustrated with it sometimes. Mm. I don't know whether or not I, I describe it as irritating. Perhaps pointless. <laughs> But I think that's where the yeah. irritation comes from. Like, was it really worth printing out every single face? Yes. Yeah. Like, are we really gaining anything from that? And I think, mm. you know, the the nice thing about stop motion and why, to be honest, on this, this series of podcasts, we've talked about predominantly stop motion films and 2D films and not any, actually, so far, CG films, is because we really enjoy knowing how things were done and picking it apart and looking at it and realizing, oh, like that, you know, that set was a miniature. It wasn't like full scale. And there's something about it's that magic of filmmaking that is probably mm. the reason why all of us went into either making films or writing about films mm. or write, you know, being academics, because that's that's the nuclei of why anyone is interested in film, whether they know it or not, is because you really like the craft of it and you like figuring out how it was done and there's something really satisfying about that and there's something dissatisfying about cg sometimes because it's like a you sort of have this one side of it is that you go like oh it was just done on the computer which is the general thought process on it and the second side of it is if you do actually know how kind of how it was done you're like oh the effort <laughs> the amount of time it takes to make a CGI film and all the like constant nitpicking over like whether this frame or this pixel matters that you just don't have in stop motion or you didn't used to. Yeah. It was like, did that happen in the way I wanted it to? Great. Is the performance believable and does it look nice? Great. I think there's a charm. There's a real charm to this. And people use that word a lot when talking about stop motion. But I think you really feel, you know, the artist's hand. And this sequence is quite interesting because this, this differs quite a lot from the book. In the, in the book, where the, the peach rolls over the ants 
and kills them. Oh, oh yeah. So that, that, <laughs> that's, them, that's them done. Oh. <laughs> and and here, here we see them getting into the car, which has a little gag in the, the, the registration plate says hag <laughs> and then a number. Uh, but they don't die. We see them sort of, you know, we, we see them watch the peach rolling off. And also the, the peach rolling over a fence um, almost feels like iconic in my head now because of this film. But again, that's not in the book, but it gives... Uh, staging wise with the stop motion this this really nice sort of spiral of of uh you know platform for the for the characters later on in the film mm. and there's a weird um almost easter egg in the book that even though actually james and the giant peach i think was roald Dahl's first uh children's novels it was 1961 it was the first of you know the the many famous ones that came out afterwards but in in the book the peach rolls through the town and smashes through uh, a, f- a famous chocolate factory, which um, <laughs> I was thinking, oh, this is like an Easter egg to you know, Charlie Chocolate Factory, but it hadn't been written then. But there's there's a, a strange sort of thread between the books somehow. In world, a, a Dalaverse. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> exactly. It's like the the Marvel universe, but with Ra's Isn't that something? Isn't that not Netflix are doing? Is oh that, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, they are. They they're doing now um, animated adaptations you know, of Roald Dahl stories. Link I think. them all together. You'll see the twits in the background of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and you'll see the magic finger with George's marvelous medicine and all that sort of stuff. The combinations are endless. Weird. Yeah, <laughs> they'll all get together for an Avengers film where some aunties are going to really, really get it. Roald Dahl Endgame. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if this places the film being sort of 20-something years old is that you've got the uh, centipede with a cigar and I wonder if that would fly now in a kid's film. Yeah, I did I did think that. He's smoking in almost every scene. He'd <laughs> have to be vaping. He'd <laughs> <laughs> have to be vaping some menthol concoction. That'd be fine. Child-friendly. Apparently Dahl was really... Um, often unhappy with the film adaptations of mm. his novels and he sort of famously didn't like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and he didn't like um what's the other one that had come out at that uh, point? the witches was it the, the witches? witches he didn't like yeah um and he died a few years before this and apparently Selleck had been trying to pursue you know an adaptation of James and the Giant Peach for a long time but um Felicity Dahl uh, Roald Dahl's widow had been invited out to the set of Night Before Christmas and seeing that uh, kind of gave her the confidence to give Henry Selleck the keys so this was a long t- this was um, I guess 60, 70, 70, like 30 years after the novel had been written something like that 25 years after the novel had been written wow and also after this it was it wasn't until Disney's BFG that there was another Disney adaptation of a Roald Dahl novel which is a huge amount of time Mm. well fantastic mr fox did you mean disney uh, disney as in in, yeah yeah, disney adaptations yeah Yeah. i do like the story that he he didn't like um the uh willy Wonka. no it was charlie and the chocolate factory originally wasn't it and then it was willy wonka when uh what's he called johnny depp uh, the Johnny other, other, other way around. All right, I think so Willy Wonka was the gene. was the original. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so um, he uh, Roald Dahl wanted Spike Milligan to play um, ah. the role of uh, Willy Wonka, and I think that was what put him off the 
the, the original one. And I, I would like to see Spike I'd love Milligan. I'd that version. Yeah, yeah. Just being an absolute arsehole to all the kids rather than just a mysterious <laughs> arsehole. <laughs> yeah. It's it's gone. Somebody somebody took a sharp intake of breath there. Was it you, Ben? That's just the state I'm in since lockdown. It's just what all my <laughs> intakes of breath are like now. Don't say it's like I'm going to make a point, but I'm just really out of shape. It's the ten- it's the tension of this moment with the seagulls. <laughs> just thinking about the um, the cast they have for this film. Mm. It's a pretty mm. solid bunch. Uh, the guy playing the earthworm would go on to be the main character in Anomalisa. Mm. Little stop motion voice acting uh, connection there. And, oh yeah, uh, I hadn't thought about that. He's a great uh, character actor, guy called uh, David Thewlis, who um, uh, is also in Big Mouth as the Shame Wizard, which is uh, uh, and um, Fargo recently, which I think the Shame Wizard was based on his character in there. Um, yeah, we, he's great. He's he's in sort of lots of Terry Gilliam films and things, but he's it feels like he's. He's he's never appreciated as much as he should be. I think he's wonderful. I think Fargo really turned a lot of people around on him because like he was mm. being talked around about a lot with that character. But it's not a hugely like embraced show. Like it's hardly Game of Thrones as far as like you know water cooler discussion. But in the the sort of critical um, uh, estimation, I guess of his work, it definitely seemed to go up a bit. Um, Mary Margulis also is the glowworm, which I hadn't, uh, I think, connected. And um, Sarandon is the spider. Yeah, that's right. Is Susan Sarandon related to Chris Sarandon? Because he was in the night uh, before Christmas, wasn't he? In that they were married, I think, in the eighties, oh, nineties. Okay. So the, okay, so, yeah, yeah, right. nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure this is he another... had a shot at the role. <laughs> <laughs> this is another bit that really differs from the book. In the in the in the book, it's kind of just normal sharks that attack the peach and start eating it from the bottom. And here we have this weird mechanical shark, which I think is a left is a kind of a leftover from the Dennis Potter script um, because there's. There's a book I had, like Laura Beth was saying, there's not much, you know, visual information or books or anything about this film, but there was a book I had of sort of essays on film or interviews with directors. And there was an interview with Henry Selleck where he was saying, um, sort of talking about this project and how it went. And uh, there's a picture in that of one of sort of Henry Selleck's early drawings for the film. And it's, it's of this shark, but there's a sort of, uh, Nazi captain stood on top and the sharks have like SS written on the side of them. Wow. <laughs> uh, so it feels like something that was maybe, yeah, left over from that version of the script or maybe it was too expensive to have lots of sharks. But this is this is what I suppose for me, one of the key moments that stands out in terms of this is computer animation and they used uh, CGI for the sea. Although to be honest, it looks it's held up pretty well. I mean, I'm thinking like pirates used, you know, pirates is a, is a fairly well-known example where they use CGI for the sea. Um, and you can, t- you can kind of tell it's computer animation, but I don't remember, you know, it doesn't particularly look here like 
it's not distractingly computer. There's a lot. There's a lot of um, overlay. Like the 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 water's clearly uh, around the around the teeth and the jaws is clearly two mm. uh, D, uh, and then the smoke on top of it. So there there and, and I think on the waves as well. You can see on the waves there's there's some foam or some sort of spray coming from it. So they're not just like done a stylization. Like a, I think that's yeah. something, the crudeness of it actually helps because it sort of makes it look more. Um, solid in a way that you wouldn't necessarily want for war but it kind it kind of makes it read a bit like plasticine being mm. sort of thumbed or sort of illustrative quality yeah. to text really and i think that kind of helps with the mixed media vibe of the film overall i'd be interested to see how the cg cg holds up on the blu-ray version because then you know there's a lot less mm. um dvd is kinder Smudgy. to old special <laughs> effects lens. <laughs> in harsh HD. But this one, I guess, this... I remember seeing the posters for this, and it was around the time that the world had Toy Story fever. Like, it was... Yeah. I, I, it had maybe been in the States a bit longer, but this was sort of, like, I think March 1996. Um, it was Toy Story 94? 95. 95. Yeah, okay. Lion King was 94. And I think maybe, so I think it was like early 96 that Toy Story came over to Europe. Um, I don't know, it's all online somewhere. Anyway, I remember there were still like news pieces about how amazing Toy Story was and stuff like that. And then there would be these sort of trailers for James and the Giant Peach. And I wonder if maybe the timing of that perhaps contributed to it not being as well attended because... CG was, you know, now and stop motion maybe. I think that's normally the most common excuse that's given for why it didn't do as well. But I just find that a really weird thing because, I mean, you can see more than one film. (laughs) You you didn't have to make a choice. You could just watch both of them. Even if it is aimed aimed at kids as a kid... As a, is it aimed as a kids' film? Yeah. Then I mean, particularly from my point of view, is that you know my parents rarely took me to the cinemas. Um, can you hear that violin in the background? <laughs> um, but they uh, they took me to see Toy Story, so I can imagine them not taking us to see this because everybody's talking about Toy Story, and plus they had three kids to take the cinemas, so that's quite expensive. So. Uh, and they're from Yorkshire, so they're super tight. <laughs> so you know, one 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 cinema out in a decade. I think back then two. you tended to go to the cinema when it was someone or your own birthday. Yeah. yeah. Or only yeah. if that you know, yeah. and that's what they wanted to do. Cinema, bowling, TGI Fridays, that or was, Pizza Hut. That was when most what happened at most birthdays mm. because there was a cinema right next to a bowling alley right next to a TGI. <laughs> it was the lazy, you know, afternoon plan. I mean that's a that's a pretty kind of fabulous party if you're doing you know <laughs> double double party bowling and cinema yeah double activity yeah it's usually the... a bouncy castle in a sports hall for us <laughs> <laughs> so there's another Toy Story connection as well in that obviously the music for this film is composed by Randy Newman mm. hot off Toy Story one. Um, and and there, and there was a there was a uh, I was reading about this as well that um, the music was originally intended to be done by Andrew Partridge of XTC, 
the British band, and he'd um, sort of written, I think, four songs. Um, and it was Selick's idea to sort of have him. Um, and then there was like some contractual disagreement between him and Disney. And so he kind of pulled out. But you can actually find some of Andy Punch's original songs on YouTube. Um, but I mean, I'm assuming they probably they wouldn't have seen Toy Story. It wasn't out at that point. So it, Randy Newman was just maybe just, you know, in the ether as a composer. But um, I know Henry Selick has said in interviews in the past that he felt there were like too many songs in Nightmare Before Christmas or there was too much kind of music and stuff and it could have done with like culling, you know, three songs or something. So I think you can definitely see in this, there's like, you know, there is that family musical element to it, but it's less than Nightmare. And actually this song we're seeing now with the centipede singing about food is taken directly from the novel. It's kind of, there's, there's a few bits that are like verbatim from the novel where they've taken dialogue or they've taken lyrics so, and, and this, this song is actually like written in the novel as Centipede gets up and starts singing a song. Hmm. <laughs> I think this is my favorite scene in the film and I really love the music in, um, in yeah. this film. Gen- overall, I think it's some of the best music in an animated film ever. Um, Joseph, were you part of like, or did you take part in Annecy at all this year? Like watching anything? I didn't, know Because there was a... I don't know, I think it was billed as a Q&A with um, Henry Selleck and the composer of his new film. That was odd. <laughs> that was an odd Q&A. It was sort of pictures of work in progress or something. But it Yeah, was... it was like in conversation mm. with, but they were basically sort of interviewing one another. Um, but the nicest thing for me was that, he, like, for Henry Selleck, he has this whole wall behind him, which are all these little cubby holes with all the different puppets from all his different films and actually a lot of this and also um uh the film that got like canned the shadow king one oh Oh, yeah um but the actual thing was quite weird i mean i'm not that interested really in the process of music anyway um but it was a very odd conversation, just generally. But it was I, I it think was good. You tune in to hear about what this film's about and some of the the stop motiony business. You know, you don't get that. It's, it's yeah, it was a bit of a shame. I was like, there's so much more you could talk to Henry Selleck about than just music. But he's a big music fan. Like he plays himself, and he music yeah. is very very important to him. So it does make sense. But it, I think I was more like, I want to hear about Wendell in the Wild a bit. But okay. I remember reading that he, yeah, he in um, well, I think in this film and Nightmare, to when he got very stressed to relax, he would go into an office and play guitar or piano. Yeah. If I remember right, when we talked to uh, Carolyn Thompson, who was the screenwriter for Nightmare Before Christmas, and I think it started with the songs because she actually was dating Dan Hoffman yeah. at the time, and so. I think that was how the story sort of came together was he did these songs and she kind of had to write this script around it, which is uh, not the worst jumping off point. No, it's an interesting way of building a story. I think Burton had written a poem when he was working at Disney and so there was like a rough framework, but it only had Jack Skellington, Zero and Father Christmas. They were the, the only named characters, so it was fairly basic as a plot line and then he he was kind of explaining scene by scene ideas to Danny Elfman who was then writing the music 
Um, and Burton obviously produced this. I mean, I, well, probably you've talked about this on the podcast before, but for anyone who's watching who thinks Tim Burton directed Nightmare Before Christmas, have a Google. Henry Selig, <laughs> who directed this film, directed Nightmare Before Christmas, um, mainly because Tim Burton was doing, I think, Batman at the same time um, and sort of entrusted it to Selig. And they'd met at Cal Arts when they were training and then they both worked at Disney. I think Selick worked at Disney for something like 18 years. It was quite a long time. And he worked on Fox and the Hound and uh, Pete's Dragon, doing quite a lot of 2D stuff. And mm. then um, and then Nightmare was his sort of big break in a way, this, this director, you know, feature directorial debut. Um, and then after that was doing, yeah, these sort of MTV idents. And he, he even did storyboarding for Return to Oz. Have you guys seen the... Oh, my goodness. Return to Oz. dark, bizarre sequel to Wizard of Oz. The Wheelers. The Wheelers. <laughs> oh, they're nightmare-inducing. I mean, they? it is, yeah. It's the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> but great film. Also involving quite a lot of animation. But I think Selick... Um, yeah, it had sort of a bit to do with the design of that through the storyboards. That's and we're now s- seeing like this amazing cutout sequence, which is one of my favourite parts of the film. It's an interesting, because I remember Jack Skellington, when I first saw Nightmare Before Christmas, really reminded me of Jack Pumpkinhead in uh, Return to Oz. Oh, like, yeah. The, the sort of gangly limbs and the big head um, and the sort of fixed expression type thing. I wonder if that any kind of connection well Jackson is one of those things that pops up a lot so he pops up in this as well at one point with the pirates yeah. yes he does and he even pops him in pops up in Beetlejuice when I mean granted these all had Tim Burton involved and um, Return Dolls didn't but there's the Jack Skeleton head on the top of them mm, like the ferris the Marigold. yeah it's when yeah, he turns yeah. into a carousel and it's like right at the top of the, yeah. the tent so it's one of those kind of like I think that's why he's such an iconic image and why it probably that probably helped with the whole it becoming such a cult film is that there's something very appealing about that design of Jack Skeleton's head specifically hmm. and that very and he you know was as we talked before about when we were doing Corpse Bride <laughs> he kind of uh, just like really ruined the lives of a lot of students who all think that they can make a spindly puppet for, as their first ever puppet. <laughs> With tiny feet. With tiny feet and a giant head and every any any uh teacher is just like mm, no. But make- I mean look at these guys. They've got they've all none of them have got just oh, only James has got two arms and two legs, but then again they're yeah. really skinny. Look at the, you know, you've got the centipede, you've got the grasshopper. Everyone's got all these extra limbs and they've They've all got to be animated. It's incredible. The spider in particular is an insane puppet. Yeah. It is a lot of work. And and on the design, that the it's this this all the characters essentially are designed by a guy called Lane Smith, who's an American mm. illustrator, who did a book, in fact another book that I grew up with called The Stinky Cheese Man and other Fair, fairly awful tales and that I can't remember the exact title but it was this book which I absolutely loved as a kid because it was sort of this subversive postmodern sort of breakdown of fairy tales where the gingerbread man is made from like stinky cheese and kind of runs around terrorizing other animals um, but Lane Smith is brilliant and and his design language is very unique and apparently Selick had seen 
um, Smith's designs because he'd done some stuff for MTV and it was in like a catalogue and Selick had sort of seen these and went, God, I love this guy. And and, and Selick does, does design stuff as well. He was the production designer on Coraline. But for this, he wanted something that was a little bit more... Um, I suppose, well, family friendly, although uh, this is fairly kind of, you know, bizarre looking in a way, but he sort of brought Lane Smith on. Apparently, Lane Smith was sort of contracted to do, I don't know, like 30 uh, paintings or something, and he ended up doing 60, and he was supposed to be there for six months. He ended up staying for two years because he loved the production so much, loved working with Henry Selick, loved the sort of vibe of the film. So he, he really sort of did a lot of concept art and off the back of that, then illustrated a version, a, a new edition of James and the Giant Peach, which um, which sort of uh, differs from the film a little bit. But um, his his style is really cool. And I think, yeah, I think this does, this sort of sets off on this road of what Leica ended up sort of pushing in their, in their work as well, in terms of stop, mo- well, it's like you're saying, Laura Beth, stop motion designs, which are, implausible for puppet makers Hmm. just to kind of um tie all that together in a in a manchester bow uh, or northwest bow even though i'm from yorkshire but you know i've got a little bit of loyalty we asked um we asked uh people on twitter what they thought of the film one of the people that got back in touch um and reminded me what's reminded me to read this tweet out is that James has got those kind of beady eyes, not unlike Bob the Builder, created by Curtis Joblin, who got in touch saying that he thinks the, the work is a work of art. It's pretty trippy. Um, and he's not sure if it's a childhood favourite because it gave his eldest daughter nightmares when she was little, which I can totally see. Um, but yeah, he says he was a, a big Lane Smith fan, but also a massive fan of uh, Paul Berry, who is obviously a huge influence on this film. And, uh, and many others with his just yeah just just one of these kind of geniuses of animation that rarely gets a look in i always find it interesting when people tell me about films that have given their kids nightmares like i once was editing something about Coraline, and the guy who wrote it said that like it gave his kids nightmares and i've always found this a very strange concept that in some way that's a bad thing like, isn't that good? Like, don't aren't kids meant to have nightmares? That it was so affecting that it stayed with them. Yeah, like, the idea that a child wouldn't be... Like, I remember watching Gremlins as a kid from behind the couch, but I still watched it because I loved it. But I loved yeah. the fear. Yeah. yeah. There, there would be moments where you would know, okay, this is the bit where I have to not look at the screen. Because you knew the scary bit was coming, but I didn't then. But didn't stop you always do like this? Like, oh no, it's too scary, but I am also going to watch it. <laughs> Actually, you know what I used to do? I don't know why this worked. There's no reason why this should have. But whenever there'd be like a scary bit in like, um, I don't know, one of the, the, the. I remember there were a couple of scary bits in like Ghostbusters 2 or something lame like that. But I would turn around away from the TV, but in our, in our, in our den as a kid, there was like a a cabinet behind the seat with a mirror on it so i would turn away from the tv to not look at the screen but i'd be seeing the screen reflected in the mirror so somehow slightly further away and flipped the image wasn't as scary (laughs) but i had to do that to get through those which is actually something i find scary now 
Like, I hate accidentally catching something in a mirror, like a face or something. Because even if I'm, like, it's nothing, like, scary, I'm still like, fucking hell. I think that's a rational fear if you're looking in the mirror and a face you're not expecting is there. That's like, I, I could get on board with that. I'd I'm just very be like, jumpy oh, in general. I can see someone coming, but if they turn around a corner, I'm still like, oh my god! <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I knew you were coming, yet still scared. <laughs> I think in some ways, Henry Selleck's whole career has been based on this idea of like horror films for kids. Yeah. yeah. Because, and Tim Burton. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, I suppose Burton's stuff is, you know, it's not all family oriented in a way, but with Nightmare, I think one of the reasons they released it through Touchstone was because it was deemed as being like too adult for kids. And the then, same with um, Hocus Pocus, I think, as well, wasn't it? Like originally. Yeah. And weirdly, the, the the cinematographer for the live action sections of this film is the same cinematographer as Hocus Pocus. I find what I find quite interesting is that <laughs> in America, it's more they ban things a lot more, and they're, they're more worried about like the effect things can have on their child. Like there are whole like mum net things that like like there is an actual website that sort of like blacklist kit things for kids and gives you like reasons as to why it's bad. And you know, you always read these things about like. I read something today, and I don't know if it was in in. I've, oh no, it was in America. They banned this because of the way one of the characters, I think, Spider, licked her lips, and they deemed it too sexual. Oh yeah. I and I just that, find yeah. the idea of like I find the kind of weird logic they go on in order to to ban something really really odd because there's so many things you could ban it for that i'd be like okay fair enough like i mean he his parents die he's abused as a child he's kidnapped by a bunch of insects who are terrifying he eats nothing but peaches for like uh, presumably months (laughs) so he you know he'd be very malnourished or sick all of these things perfectly fine but the way in which the spider licks a lip made a dad a bit horny is the reason really that that's become the thing. <laughs> yeah. And the same with Coraline, there's so much in that that's wrong. But when I was doing some research as to why like they have an issue with it, it's because, um, you know, the Russian guy or who lives in the attic of the Pink Palace. Mr. Babinski. Yeah, they had a problem because you can see his nipples. That was their problem with it. I was like, really? Because men don't have nipples in America? Like, I don't understand. What? We haven't, we just don't talk about them. It was just really odd. I was like, there's so much more wrong with this film. But that's what you're going to hang your disapproving hat on? It's such a strange... <laughs> and also the fact that in America they celebrate Halloween so so much and so arduous. And the whole point of Halloween in America is to be scared. Yeah, but they also dress up as whatever the heck they want for Halloween. They don't. They're not like cover themselves in fake blood and stuff. They but, they'll dress up as the fanciest, schmanciest, whatever ever. You know. They, but they there's don't a market. Really what I mean is like there's a market for it. Like there is actually yes, a holiday, yeah, yeah. and that's why Nightmare for Christmas probably did slightly better, is because it can be shown at both Christmas and Halloween, which I think is why Disney went for it. Really, is that mm. they it was a film they could market on both holidays, and they didn't have that many films for Halloween. Um, yeah, and it's such I a mean, strange it's certainly thing been, to me. Yeah, it's been it's been picked up more by Disney in recent years. I think they've sort of reclaimed it and pushed it more. Nightmare, you know, as a as a sort of property. I think originally it was like it's a risk. It's sort of something on a side arm, and then now it's you know it's Disneyland. Even there's like the rides are kind of rebranded as Nightmare rides, and it's and on Halloween the of, whole park becomes Jack Skeleton Land. 
Right, right. I think uh, it, the uh, originally they didn't make much of a fanfare about the fact that it was a Walt Disney production, but then on the re-release, the title Walt Disney gets a lot bigger uh, on the posters <laughs> and on the all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's strange because I think I don't know necessarily in England, but in Europe we don't really have a general problem with that kind of thing. Like I don't know of many kids kids films, any film that was PG or U, other than maybe like Watership Down or something that had a, a history of being like, this is too dark for children. Um, mm. Because we kind of grow up with more dark things. Because I think as a child, you're expected to just watch what's ever on. Like, mm. I didn't really get sheltered from anything growing up. Like, obviously, I wasn't allowed to watch horror films when I was seven. But, like, you know, you watch the news. I remember the one thing that gave me more nightmares than anything else was watching Holby City as a kid because <laughs> but some of the storylines in that were really horrible like people dying from like car accidents and like their faces were just puddles but my mum was a nurse so she loved all of the nursing programs so we watched all of them but I was like this is more traumatising than any animated thing will ever be yeah, Holby City was so dark Mm. Holby City was pretty tame. It was it was um, casualty. Casualty was, the, was oh, maybe great it, fun. Yeah. Maybe it was casualty. But casualty was like three it, accidents in the first five minutes. But no, no. But the Someone accidents just, were always hilarious, weren't they? They were yeah. always like, "I'm just going to take my ladder off to saw, chainsaw this tree branch off, darling." You know, and, and I mean, like, as and an you adult, see the ladder wobbling. <laughs> I mean, as an adult, you could see exactly who was going to die from like a mile away. But yeah, like yeah. as a kid, you're like. This seems reasonable. Why is he drinking lye? Oh no! <laughs> but yeah, there was something about the the um, the horribleness of the uh, title uh, song for Casualty that used to freak me out as well. But yeah, that and X Files. I think there's one X Files episode that really freaked me out as a kid. But other than that, so nothing did, really. Did else. anyone? Did anyone have any? And I might have mentioned this on the podcast before. If not, it's a it's me revealing something i've never revealed before but has anyone did anyone have any irrational fears when they were a kid where that something was on the telly a particular tv character or uh anything that that was on tv that people would go what that's not scary i mean i still have an irrational fear because of this x-files episode of dolls like i'm i actually have a fear of inanimate objects that come to life which is weird Having That's why you're an, an animator. animator. Yeah. <laughs> I, but I honestly think it is, I think it was some sort of subconscious therapy for myself to be, mm. to then be okay with it because realizing that there was always someone uh, manipulating the thing. But I went for a period of time where people kept giving me China dolls and I, like, as gifts. And I was a very quiet and uh, shy child. So it took me about seven years of people giving me a China doll at least once a year to tell my mum, Mum, you know I'm terrified of these. <laughs> and I would just stay up at night because they all used to face my bed. I'd just stare at them until I, like, passed out because I was just like, I am so scared. Until Terrifying. I was about 15. <laughs> I was able to be like, Mum, can we get rid of them now? Because I still really don't like them. Because then they moved under my bed. By themselves. Mm. By uh, themselves. <laughs> but, they, yeah, they really freak me out. And they still kind of do. So I sort of surround myself with puppets I've built. But I'm like, you can't hate me because I made you. <laughs> but I still get From... like freaked out if I like don't look after my puppets properly. My puppets are all locked away in the university from, since before COVID. So they're going to be wicked pissed. As if they don't escape. 
For me, it was the honey monster. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah, I used to leave the room when the honey monster... Because back then, the honey monster's clothes used to rip and he'd transform into the honey monster whenever he got hungry. And that... Yeah, and that scared the absolute living crap out of me. And so I had to leave the room. Ben has a lot of stupid things that scared him as a child. Um... Apparently, when I was like very, very, very young, like, and I don't remember this. Um, apparently, I was afraid of the Energizer Bunny. Not on TV, but they actually had one. Like, a, they, I guess, bought some batteries, and it came with a, a Energizer Bunny. Um, and I was afraid of the way it kind of uncannily stomped around the room, banging its <laughs> demonic drums. Demonic drums. When I was very young, also, and I do remember this, I was really freaked out by the bird call of the loons in Canada. They are freaky. And it's actually a quite beautiful, haunting call. Um, But as a kid, it just sounds like fucking ghosts having a little (laughs) natter. We are very lucky that we weren't (laughs) friends as children because I was the kid that told all the horror stories but had like a complete deadpan face. I was like, you know, that's because of all the children that died in the lake, right? They come back as loons. (laughs) You're like Wednesday Adams. Yeah, I really, yeah, I really was. (laughs) Uh, Nothing for you, Joseph. Come on, what have you? Well, actually, Belladonna from The Herbs by... (laughs) Either would. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the the witch character I used to have to hide behind the sofa. Oh. Um, she I think she's only in one episode, but I just found it absolutely terrifying. And also in um, Pogel's Wood, I think there's a witch in, in yeah, uh, episode yeah. who is equally terrifying. So yeah, anything witches basically. Although Roald Dahl's, you know, the 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 um, Nicholas Rogue film of the witches, I remember not being too badly affected by but maybe that was later on i thought it was really creepy when she took the mask off i thought that, that was that was brilliant yeah uh but you had mr bean in it so it was funny so you'd have to worry about it <laughs> and we've seen we've seen here this kind of sequence with the rhino which is almost another um technique in a way well it's live action which was shot with an animatronic rhino in a tank with kind of milk poured in and as the rhino moved it would sort of stir up all the milk and it was shot i don't know 60 frames per second or something and then slowed down so this this kind of technique of the rhino is actually you know a live action sort of special effect yeah which is sort of shoved in there and then we return to the live action here and again like everything's still on sound stages so the version of new york in fact i was even referencing this in what was it for uh, it was for a project last year where I was working on where the way they be- depict New York City in this is um, really interesting. Again, it's on a soundstage, it's very stylized. It's almost, I mean, Selick said they tried to approach it. The production designer was Harley Jessup, who went on to work for Pixar on stuff like Monsters, Inc. and Ratatouille. But he was saying they tried to sort of approach it like an opera or a stage play. So the sets looked, you know, very sort of stylized. They're almost like cutouts in a way. Again, linking this to the animation, trying to sort of embed the whole thing in the same sort of language. But it's um, it's interesting. I think there's a similarity to some of Burton's stuff. This could be, you know, Gotham City in, uh, you know, um, Batman. Batman Returns yeah. or something. I saw the um, 
the trailer for this. I put it up on the on Twitter earlier on, and yet again, the the Burton inspiration is is throughout. Even though this you know very very little Burton in it, because um, they played what's this in the trailer, oh, and they did yeah. that for Corpse Bride. They did that for Corpse Bride as well. That's really odd, isn't it? Yeah, I think they often in trailers they'll sort of just nick a track from something that they think has a similar mood and just whack it on the trailer for the new film. I think Should we watch a trailer for Frankenweenie and see if it's in that yeah. as well? It, yes, it definitely will be. <laughs> I remember they used What's This for the trailer for Casper as well. <laughs> which I felt was sort of a bit more of a stretch. What's but, this? Mm. It's a ghost. <laughs> it's not even a ghost movie. <laughs> yeah, I know. And 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 not and um uh, Edward Scissorhands as well. The Danny Elfman soundtrack for Edward Scissorhands is is like overly used in yeah. trailers. Yeah, definitely the 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 snow sculpting scene song. It's just mm. like everything, and it comes up every Christmas on at least eight ads. And before that, <laughs> it was the music from Pee Wee. Mm. There was a, there's right. a particular theme in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. The yeah, da 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 da. Yes, that was in yeah, yeah. Everything. And also, years. if there's anything that's like an advert for something that's a little bit kooky or weird, it's the Beetlejuice song. Oh yeah. Mm. I the, think I know what you mean. As in the. Like if it's okay. something like about goths or emos, <laughs> or like occultists, that song comes in. <laughs> it's that weep weep bit. That's sort of really weirdly oh, yeah, jarring yeah. and unnerving. And they're like, oh, they were a bit kooky. Beetlejuice. <laughs> I want to use it in a, a documentary about serial killers. That would be... <laughs> I'm sure actually it has been. This peach looks really rank now. Yeah, it's been Like, it always freaks me out that the kids are like, can we eat it? I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's pickled in seawater, but sure. That always scares me out, actually. The, the kids just devouring it to the the seed in the middle the, um, and then they were all we really bloody sick <laughs> they love a salty peach the end <laughs> scene where he's like talking to the kids about the story those are the only kids left left in New York they all perish due to peach poisoning this is another element which isn't in the original book that the aunts return having driven through through the ocean through the sea <laughs> <laughs> which some people i was reading some sort of comments online and people were saying i find it really implausible that the ants <laughs> drove through the sea and i was thinking well i mean you know there's quite a lot of <laughs> surreal implausible stuff in the whole thing seagull flight of peach is perfectly oh, yeah. rational what are the the um aunts meant to be in what sense? How, how do you mean? Because at the end they sort of like get swizzled round and turn into like their hair comes off, and obviously they've just swam through the sea in a in a car. And there's that thing, that like weird thing where he's when he's going down to the pirate ship, where the front of a ship is them as like mm. harpies or gorgoyles or. I don't like, think they're meant to be like. I always thought I always read it as they were meant to be something like mythical, like I think mythically they're just meant evil. to be old bitches. But then these mythical images kind of, like, are meant to remind you of them. Oh, I thought they were meant to be, like, banshees or sea witches or something. I feel like they're a symbol of evil in the film, along with the rhino. They kind of remind me of, like, Greek sirens. Like, they have, like, alluring Mm. voices that then it turns out they're hideous. 
Yeah, I suppose the wig thing is that they're just incredibly sort of vain and made up and, um, you know, grotesquely sort of flamboyant on the outside, but on the inside they're with... It's like that quote from the Twits that says, you know, if somebody has ugly thoughts, they end up looking ugly. Mm. Plus, it's always funny when somebody turns out to be bald. Yeah. <laughs> but I suppose they're, they're sort of continued in the film to have this sense of threat. It doesn't just go straight into a happy ending. It has this this sort of, you know, moment here where you're kind of going, oh, you know, is he going to make it? Is he going to be taken back to the horrible house on the hill? Um, yeah, he's also... James is confronting these ants and confronting the uh, rhino alone. Yeah. So it's almost as if the... Um, obviously before the, the bugs return, but the live-action sequences could do without the animated sequence in the middle, and it would kind of... It could kind of work out as a as a, as a little 40-minute film. Be an awful a film. Five, we want to see... Five-minute short. Yeah. I mean, he does confront the rhino as a puppet. I suppose, yeah. But I think it's... Um, I mean, actually, this was, this was what Selick had said about the Dennis Potter screenplay, was that really it's a story about, uh, you know, a kid who's lost his family, but gains a new one through the bugs. So the fact that in this previous, in the original, this, this, uh, this other screenplay was created, that his father came back and sort of found him in New York at the end. It, didn't, it, it sort of moved away from the point of the film that, you know, he's lost his parents, he's gone through all this trauma. Here he, through the sort of confidence he's gained through going on this adventure with the bugs, he's able to sort of confront his aunts and do away with them. And then he has the nice little peach stone house in Central Park at the end. Does he get a green card? I mean, I was thinking that this is actually quite a sort of, you know, um, uh, an early, like, idealistic view of New York and America being, you know, the city of of immigrants. There's like, you know, quite a sort of multi-ethnic, you know, cast for these crowd scenes. It's it's all about, you know, let's go to New York. That's the place that we can sort of be who we want to be and, and settle and everything, which watching it now is sort of... You know, more relevant than ever in a way. I like at this. Are they literally trying to murder him at this point <laughs> in front of a crowd? <laughs> in front of a policeman who's doing nothing. I love how it takes like this. It has to get to this point when um, all his mates come down. It's like, all right, it's gone on long enough. The bugs. The bugs arrive. Yeah, and they're still so I think puppets. The... <laughs> which is great. Yeah, these sequences are sort of some of the only ones in the film that, that do sort of mix live action and animation in the same frame. And I mean, the character performance is amazing. Like you were saying, Steve, Paul Berry. Um, yeah. I remember when we were at math, you were showing us sort of images of the storyboards of Sandman or something that were all on the wall at home. Yeah. But um, the Sandman was... Um, was it nominated for an Oscar or it won an Oscar? I think it was anyway, it was under the Yeah, it was not it was nominated, yeah. Of the Academy and that, that sort of switched on Tim Burton. He came on and, and sort of was the main animator for for Jack in Night Before Christmas and then Henry Selick got him to be animation supervisor on this and again I think relating it to Lyca and what we're seeing now, Paul Berry really established this 
this sort of attention to detail in um, the performance in stop motion. Um, and he'd worked at Cosgrove Hall for a long time on Wind of the Willows and, uh, you know, Fall of the World and the Flying Ship and, and then went off to the States and I think did Nightmare and this and then Monkey Bone. Um, Monkey Bone was his last film, yeah. Yeah, sort of almost back to back. And Henry Selick had, he'd sort of formed Skellington Productions with Tim Burton for Nightmare and then they did this as well and they did Cabin Boy, which I haven't seen, but was a live action film with bits of animation in it that was also under that sort of banner and because this film didn't do well at the box office they sort of disbanded Skellington Productions but apparently when this film finished Selick was um had sort of signed a three film deal with Miramax um which at that point was a subsidiary of Disney to do uh yeah more sort of films that combined live action and animation mm. And somehow that didn't work out. I, I feel like that's sort of slightly lost to the history books. I'm not quite sure what happened there, but um, I've, it's unfortunate that Selick has had. He's an amazing artist, really. I think he's again. He's somebody who's underrated. He's maybe been in the shadow of Burton for a long time, but he's had all these sort of things, like you were saying earlier, Laura Beth, the Shadow King, this film that was being made at Disney. They'd shot almost half the film. And then Disney cancelled the production. That I just... And he's been really... I've never really heard anything as to why that happened. Mm. Or, like, what the deal with that was. Because, obviously, mm. we follow similar people on Instagram and stuff that get to show a lot of the puppets and stuff yeah. now. So that they have something in their portfolio. But it just seems baffling. Like, you're Disney. You own everything. Just let him make the damn film. Yeah, Like, yeah. what are you worried about? You own everything. I'm sure they had the money to see yeah. it through. It's like the only it's thing you just... don't own is Ardman. <laughs> Good time. They had a go. Give it they... time. I know. But like, how can they care? Like, just let him make it. Or why he didn't like just take it over to like Leica and say, can I finish it here? Yeah, it's interesting that it wasn't developed at Leica. It was, he had sort of moved over to Disney Pixar and they developed it there. And But you know, the fact that it was halfway through the shoot it's just nuts to have sort of cancelled it when they'd already shot especially, so much of it. Especially when, really, it's the puppet side of things which takes more of the time, really. Mm. Mm. Especially with something like that. Because they came up with some really innovative puppet designs and, and ways of working, and there was a lot of stuff in that film. And, it, yeah. and normally when a stop motion or any film gets cut, it's because the story's not working. But it doesn't seem like that was the case because they wouldn't have got to animating, really, if the story was still not working. Yeah, I it looks great from what I've seen. The the visual language, the sort of you know the look of the film really looks looks fantastic. But at least we now know he's doing Wendell and Wild with Netflix, so there will be a new Henry Selick soon. Hmm. I wonder if the, the credits coming up here and uh, uh, Kelly Asprey's on there as well, who sadly passed away this week. Yeah, uh, that's with, really tragic. With Joe Ranft. Um, so, uh, I don't yeah, know what to say it, about that, but yeah, that's... that's, that's it. it is It is sad. I think there's... It's, it's interesting that this, this sort of dark, more adult, sort of interesting-looking stuff was all almost a product of Disney. Like, a lot of these guys went to CalArts... 
Um, I think Selick was in the same sort of year as Brad Bird and everything, and they all um, were sort of you know learning from each other and um, talking about their you know their projects. They were really aware of what was going on at Pixar. Obviously, you know the Shadow King was being made sort of with with Pixar Disney. Um, and there's there's some really amazing artists who sort of come out of that CalArts school of the the sort of Disney mentality, but then taken it somewhere else artistically, narratively, and sort of you know pushed pushed the storytelling in a way to something a bit more interesting. I wonder if the slight darkness to films that came out around the in the nineties, especially stop or late nineties, slightly on, was a product of cultural things that were happening at the time or just influence from the history of stop motion because obviously stop motion generally has quite a lot of stuff to do with like early cinema and a lot of early cinema had stuff to do with gothic and the occult and and coming out the 80s you were coming out of like satanic panic and all that kind of thing so i wonder if it was and like coming into the 90s you had a lot of like metal and goth music and just culturally, there was a lot more rock and and heavy metal kind of. Would we have would we have began to would we have began to have been exposed to a lot more in the early nineties? Would Annecy and, and and other festivals have been exposed to a lot more kind of Eastern European mm. uh, animation as as the kind of the Soviet Union collapsed and uh, yeah, animators who've been squirreling away all this work had been able to show it and in in festivals. That's a that's that's a question for somebody who knows the answer. I mean, I know Burton. Tim Burton always says, you know, the, the kind of German expressionism he didn't really come across until much later, and it that wasn't the thing. You know, he knew Edward Gorey, and he knew sort of other other sort of, I guess, assimilation American assimilations of similar sort of stuff. But um, Selick, I think, has said in interviews that he's he's been inspired by yeah Eastern European animation. I think you're right, Steve. I think there's there's probably like a a sort of availability of stuff through film festivals and things that would have inspired people as well. Um, I mean, now it's amazing that we can we can find anything we want. We can order you know DVDs of Eastern European stuff. We can watch the Disney stuff. You know, we can sort of really get our hands on all sorts of different approaches whether they're stylistic or narrative. Hmm. Yeah, it can. you can definitely see the sort of Weimar cinema uh, influence in, in Burton's stuff. Mm. Talking about Burton, we've mentioned Burton more times than we mentioned Selick. Should we just say Selick all over and over again for the last two minutes of this I film? I mean, that's that's the problem, really. <laughs> that all it happens. is. We're part of the it problem. Is. It's a bit like um, when you say something is Kafka-esque, Burton-esque is a far more common... Uh, were then Selikinst. <laughs> like I don't think Selikist? Selikin? Selikesque. Selikesque. I think he's had a, he's had a hard he has had a hard time. He's he's you know, there's a lot of project and in fact after this film he was supposed to be doing an adaptation of a ch- another children's book, um, which was I think in development um at the time that this film finished. This this one with Miramax, and again, this sort of th- three film deal got got cancelled, and it's it's sad. I feel like and and Monkey Bone has sort of been you know relegated to the sort of dusty archives of uh, film history, um, but he he is an amazing artist. I think he really sort of came back to the forefront with Coraline, um, and 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 people kind of 
you know, remembered his sort of genius through that. But I, I, I really think, you know, a huge amount of Nightmare Before Christmas is to do with Selleck. I think, you know, Tim Burton was on set about five days or something. Mm. It's really about we've got second. We've got seconds left. We need to we need to plan uh, the, the, the next podcast. Uh, Joseph, before we do, Joseph, where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me. I think it's Joseph Wallace UK. Okay, and- a website. Josephwallace.co.uk. Uh, Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, what are we doing Pleasure. next time, guys? What's the What's the film uh, next time? Did we were we going to have another? Did was it any- Ernest v. v Ernest or what? What were we going to do? Was it another? Did we want another vote one or did we want an, uh, uh, a veto one? Dictatorship. I'm happy with a vote. Maybe uh, Joseph, do you have any suggestions? Oh goodness, I haven't. I Not mean, to put you no. on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> let the let the fans decide. I have no idea. Uh, we have Watership Down versus Animal Farm. That'll do. Watership okay, Down okay. versus Animal Farm. <laughs> right on, guys. Get voting. Our future is in your hands. They're both incredibly bleak. Yay! It, it's what we do. Well, that's it for the film. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Joseph. See you next week, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.